Thank you. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Um, if you're new, I do not normally wear football jerseys <laughs> when I preach, but some of us have been waiting decades. <laughs> so if you have um, Lions gear on, come up at the end of the service. We're going to get a picture together, okay? Yeah. All right. Now, for the important things, grab a Bible and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 14. Second Chronicles chapter 14, thank you to Alex for moving all the post-it notes in the Bible, so it's going to be marked real easy for you to find. As you're turning there, I just have a question for you to ponder, and that is, how do you finish life well? How do you finish life well? How do you, when you get towards the end of your days... End your life with joy and gratitude for all the blessings and not depression or bitterness for all the things you've lost along the way. Because when you live a long time, you have lots of blessings, but you also have lots of loss, huh? Yeah, how do you finish life well? And it's one of the questions that is sparked when we study the lives of the Israelite kings. Just to review, um, as we've been going through this series called The Story, covering kind of the overview of the whole Bible, Genesis, God creates the world perfectly good. He gives it to us as a gift to rule over. And what do we do? Yeah, we break it. We, we mess it all up. And then we ignore his advice on how to fix it. You know, the one who created the world, the one who created us, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> So we're ignoring God, and so God finds one person who's willing to follow him, a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, look, if you follow me, I'm going to lead you to a land where I will multiply your descendants, and through your descendants, I will bless the whole world. And so Abraham does follow God to the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. And Abraham's family tree looks like this. He married Sarah. They had a son named Isaac, who was married to Rebekah. And they had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons with four different women. So down there you see the names of his 12 sons. And the descendants of those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? So this map, you can see the different shaded areas are where the 12 tribes settled. Okay, and let's see, I did this last time too, I pointed the wrong way. Okay, this line right here, that shows modern day Israel's boundaries, just to give you an idea. You see, none of the tribes settled down here. There's still pretty much no settlements there because that's just all desert. Up here, you see a gap of where the tribes did not settle. That's where the Philistines lived. And I don't know that you can see it on the map. It's like really faint. But there's supposed to be a line right there where the shore is. It doesn't actually jut in like that. It's just kind of a curved line. Right there is modern-day Gaza Strip, where the Palestinians live. Um, and the Palestinians are not have no relation to the Philistines, um, even though the name sounds familiar. But okay, so this is where they were. And during the 12 tribes, they had no central government. We talked about this during the book of Judges. 
right? How it was just very lawless time. Um, God would raise up these judges who were kind of like local sheriffs who would beat off bands of raiders and stuff. But it was very lawless. So they asked God for a king. God anoints Saul, the first king. And Saul, he... He, yeah, he makes all the different tribes into one nation, the nation of Israel. But Saul disobeys God, so God abandons him. And the next king is who? David. Yeah, God appoints David king. David also ruled over all this territory. And then after David dies, his son became king. Who is his son? Solomon. Yeah, we learned about Solomon last week. And Solomon started out very good. Um, he asked God for wisdom. He built a temple to the Lord and encouraged everyone to um, worship the Lord. But Solomon, he ended up putting his trust for protection in political alliances. And to make political alliances, he married women of foreign nations, 700 of them, and 300 concubines. It is really hard to keep 1,000 wives happy. Um, and these women, they wanted to worship their own gods from their own countries, right? And if you have a 1,000 women, wives, pressuring you for that, what happens? You cave. And Solomon caved, and he not only let them set up temples and altars to their gods, but he started worshiping the gods too. And so the end of his life is much different than the beginning of his life. He not only trusted in these political alliances, he trusted in having huge armies and building campaigns where he would build walls around cities and stuff. So that meant mandated drafts in military service. It meant lots of taxes. And it meant mandated labor, that the Israelites were forced to do all of these buildings. So after Solomon dies, um, the elders of Israel go to his son Rehoboam. And that's what you read about this last week in the story. And they say, look, your father Solomon put this heavy burden on us, these heavy taxes, this mandated labor. If you will lessen our burden... We'll serve you. And Rehoboam takes three days to think about it. And then the elders come back and he just says, look, you think my father was tough? You ain't seen nothing yet. My father beat you with whips. I'll beat you with scorpions. And they're like, no thanks. And they just left and went home. And so at this point, the nation of Israel, it divides into two separate nations. Those are exact portraits, by the way. <laughs> um, so the southern tribe of Judah, that's the tribe that King David was from. So they stay loyal to his son and grandson, Rehoboam. Also, Benjamin, which was right about here, joins with Judah. The rest of the tribes form a northern kingdom, and they keep the name Israel. So now there's two kingdoms. In the south, it's the kingdom of Judah. In the north, it's still called Israel. And they appoint their own king, Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, um, he gets nervous that if people travel down to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, 
they'll want to go back and be part of Judah again. So he makes two golden calves, puts one way up here, and he puts the other one right about there. My hand's not that steady. Like, there. Why does he put it there? So they see it first. So because that is, he puts it right on the road to Jerusalem. To say, hey, these are your gods who led us out of Egypt. Remember the golden calf? Here it is. And you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. This is more convenient. And the Israelites abandon the worship of the true God for the worship of a more convenient God. And from that time on, Israel has all evil kings. They worship idols. They do not worship God. It is chaos. There are military coups and assassinations. And some of them, some of the kings reign a long time. Some reign like seven days. It it does not go well in Israel. In Judah, it goes better. About at least half of their kings, about half of their kings were good kings that followed God. So after Rehoboam, his son Abijah, Abijah becomes king. And then after Abijah, his son Asa becomes king. And Asa's who we're going to learn about today. Okay? So in Second Chronicles chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 2. Right after the heading where it says Asa be king of Judah. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars in the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up and fortified the cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have, what does it say? We have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And the next paragraph talks about his army. But then in, cha- in verse 9, it says this, Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots and came as far as Mereshah. So back to our map. This is King Ace's portrait. Okay. <laughs> You see, you still have the northern and southern kingdom. Now Basha is reigning in the north. Asa we have in the south. Zerah the Cushite, um, that Cush was south of Egypt, okay? So he marches an army from like over here all the way up to right about there, like within a day's walk of Jerusalem. So this army is deep into Judah's territory. They're threatening the capital. And if you want to know how I know it's a day's walk, I looked it up on Google Maps. (laughs) It's incredible. These aren't just stories. Like, you can still find these places today. So, Asa, this king who has been undoing what his grandfather Solomon did, 
with all these idols. He's wiping them out and everything. He's young in his reign, and now there's this huge army just a day away from the capital. What does he do? Verse 10. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions near the valley of Zephah, near Merishah. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And the Lord answered. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah And the Cushites fled. And so they end up chasing them all the way out of Judah. And and then they return to Jerusalem. This is like the first big test of Asa's reign. And he sought God, he cried out. And that's going to become a theme of his entire reign. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, so they're coming back from the battle and God is sending a prophet to meet Asa with a word. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you, what does it say? Seek him, him, he will be found by you. We're going to hear that phrase over and over again. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, He will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days, it had not been safe to travel about, for the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another and one city by by another because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong. Do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. It's this theme. He says, look, when you seek God, just like you did at that battle, you sought God before the battle, you're going to find him. And you can see it throughout Israel's history. There's lots of times they had... They did not have the true God. But when they sought him, they found him. And this poses a very interesting question. Because, well, it says, if you seek God, you will find him. The prophet is also saying the reverse. When you're not seeking God, you don't have the true God. And that's interesting because Israel had made a covenant with God. Right? Back all the way back to Sinai, they said, Oh God, we're going to worship you and we will be your people and you will be your God. So they had that salvation moment. And yet years later, if they're not seeking God, they do not have the true God. And it's only when they seek the true God that he shows up. Which kind of indicates your relationship with God cannot be on autopilot. Sometimes when things start going awry, people ask, you know, why, where is God? Why doesn't he prevent this? 
Well, maybe God's just waiting for you to seek him. It reminds me of what Hebrews 11, 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must first of all believe that God exists and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's what Hebrews 11, 6 says. It's a theme. Seeking God, finding God, God rewarding those who seek him. It's a theme not just of Asa's life, but throughout the entire Bible. And when the prophet says, look, but as for you, be strong, don't give up, for your work will be rewarded, your seeking of God will be rewarded, Asa's really encouraged by that. So the next verse, verse 8. When Asa heard these words of the prophecy of Azariah of Oded the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. He had been wanting to do some reforms. He did some reforms, but this gave him courage to do even more because this is political. It's not just, it's not like kings can just do whatever they want, right? There's politics involved, but he had courage that he could do this. And then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who had settled among them. For large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So people are now migrating from Israel to become a part of what God is doing in Judah. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month and the 15th year of Asa's reign. And at that time, they sacrificed hundreds of sacrifices to the Lord, and they make a covenant to honor and follow the Lord with all of their heart and soul and mind. In verse 15, we're going to see the same language again. All Judah rejoiced about this oath that they made. Because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. So they have peace. Asa goes even further. He gets rid of the queen mother, his grandmother, Mekah, because she was worshiping idols. I mean, he just keeps cleaning house. And it is this national revival. Verse 19 says, there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Well, what happened in the 35th year? Why, why, why did it end? Chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah, that's a city, to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. So if we look at our map again, you see Ramah is on there. He goes and he fort, Bethel is where the golden calf was, okay? He fortifies Ramah, why? Yeah, to stop the migration of people going from Israel to Judah, to stop trade. Okay, verse 2. Then Asa took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple 
and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Haram, who was ruling in Damascus. That would be north of Israel. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. So um, Ben-Hadad is in the north and he starts attacking northern Israel. They conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using. And with them, he built up two of his own cities on the border, Geba and Mizpah. So, did King Asa's plan work? Yeah, I mean, it stopped Basha from fortifying Ramah, right? So, it was a successful plan. Was it the right plan? Was it the right thing to do? Why not? He didn't seek God first. He took stuff from the temple of God, right? And he gives it to the king of Aram, who's going to do what with that stuff? Yeah, he's going to put it in the temple of his idols. That's what's going to happen. So God sends another prophet to talk to King Asa again. Verse 7, next verse. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped you. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And this is a classic verse. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. And from now on, you're going to be at war. Now, whenever God sends a prophet to a king, it's not just to um, tell them that they messed up. It's to give them a chance to repent. If you remember the story of King David when he sinned with against Bathsheba and Uriah, and God sent the prophet Nathan, and David repented. There's many stories throughout the Old Testament where God sends prophets to kings, even the most evil kings. And when they repent, God forgives. The king of Nineveh, right? And God over and over again says, oh, look, see how they're repenting. And he either lessens the consequences or he delays it. Often he delays it. He will say, because the king has repented, I'm not going to bring about this disaster. I'll wait until there's a worse king. (laughs) It's basically what God does. So Asa has the opportunity to repent and be like, ah, you're right. I shouldn't have sent sacred things dedicated to God, to the king of Aram. I shouldn't have trusted in him. I should have called out to God. Verse 10. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. 
He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally opposed some of his people. This doesn't even sound like the same guy. This was the great King Asa who led a national revival. Got everybody on fire for the Lord. Doing the right thing. And now he's brutally oppressing people. Next verse, 11. The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. That doesn't mean it's wrong to seek help from physicians. But how sad is it that he wouldn't even seek help from God? And so he dies two years later. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. So my original question, how do you finish life well? Right? It's tragic to see what happens in the life of Asa. And you have to ask yourself, why? How did he go from the king who was on a fire for the Lord to the king who's angry and bitter and even when he's sick, won't even talk to God? Sometimes when we've been walking with God for a long time, as Asa had been, we begin to trust in the blessings God gives us instead of God himself. When we, we'll trust in the wealth he gives us, we trust in the wisdom he gives us. When we walk with God for a long time, God blesses us. We see this all throughout scripture. And he develops gifts and abilities and talents in us. He will develop our leadership skills. He will give us wisdom. And that will cause us to be elevated to positions of leadership and influence. And that's a good thing. But when you get to that point in your life, it's easy to just rely on the wisdom that God has given you instead of relying on God. I think... In Asa's life, God sends him two big tests, right? One is at the beginning of his reign to see what kind of king he's going to be. To see if he's going to be a king who does his own thing or if he's going to be a king who depends on God. And Asa passes with flying colors, right? 20 years later, God sends him a second test to see if, are you the king who still relies on me or not? Or have you become self-reliant? And Asa fails. And that's a warning to all of us who have been walking with God for a long time. I think one of the reasons Asa fails is because a second test wasn't like this overwhelming crisis, right? It's not a huge army just a day away from the nation's capital. It's an annoying northern king building where he shouldn't build. Well, okay, I can take care of this one myself. And it becomes very easy to start taking care of problems ourselves without first seeking God. My friends, I don't ever want to become self-reliant. 
Um, our church staff, we meet every Tuesday. We always have an agenda. But the first half hour of our meeting, we spend listening to God's word and praying. And then afterwards, I'll ask the staff, was there anything that came to your mind during prayer? Sometimes there wasn't anything, but sometimes there is. Sometimes it's a family or a person or a ministry need. And we're like, okay, and that becomes the top of our agenda then. And we change our agenda based upon our time seeking the Lord. The LBA, your leadership board, we spend the beginning of every meeting doing the same, listening to God's word, seeking him in prayer. I think it's the most important thing we do. It's so easy for us to start relying on ourselves instead of God. So for you and your family, when you are facing problems, do you spend time seeking God together? Or do you only seek God on the big overwhelming stuff? I want to get back to my original question. How do you finish life well? I think the ultimate lesson from King Ace's life isn't just that we should seek God in the big and the small things. That's, that's part of the lesson. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that we should seek God because God is worth seeking. God is worth seeking. It's not just about the blessings he gives us. God is the ultimate prize. The blessings he gives us are just a shadow. They're just a pale reflection of the goodness of the giver. And he is a hundred times more worthy and desirable than his gifts. The tragedy of Asa's life is he sought God for God's blessings. And then when he was abundantly blessed, guess what? He didn't seek God anymore. He didn't turn to other idols and gods, but he stopped seeking God. Because his whole relationship with God was based upon what God could do for him. And what blessings God could give him. And when he had all the blessings he needed, he stopped seeking God. And then when God took away some of those blessings, he got angry with God. If you only seek God for his blessings, toward the end of your life, when your loved ones die, And when your health fails, there's a good chance you're going to become depressed or bitter. But if you seek God for a relationship with him, because he is what you desire, then at the end of your life, you have joy because you're about to see the one who loves you the most. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Philippians. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said to live is Christ because he was a missionary and he did God's work and he told people about Jesus Christ. That's what he lived doing. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, well, it's going to mean fruitful labor for, for me. Yet what shall I choose? 
I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul, at the end of his life, he is torn between wanting to go and be with his Savior and friend, Jesus Christ, and looking at people and saying, ah, but they still need help. In the same letter, Paul writes this, Philippians 3, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, everything I've gained in this world, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the greatest, most desirable prize you can ever have. We seek God because he's worth seeking. And if you live your life that way, you will finish life well. You will finish life with gratitude and joy in your heart, not depression and bitterness. Because you will be focused I'm being with the one who loves you instead of focused on the things that you've lost in this life. Psalm 73, 25 says, Who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing I desire besides you. Let me pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray This is challenging because it's challenging to de- for us to desire what we cannot see. But Lord, I pray that you will grow in us love for you, that we will love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, I pray that you will become the friend who is closer than a brother to us. And that we will walk and talk with you as Adam and Eve did, as Abraham did, as Moses and David did, who knew you. And we would desire your presence and company more than we would desire your blessings. God, we thank you for your blessings. You are so good to us. We thank you for the good relationships you've given us. We thank you for you how you provide for us. We pray, God, that we will seek you. Even now, God, I know there are people in need of housing in our congregation. We pray you'll provide that need. God, this last couple of months, I've been seeing you do miracles in marriages. And I thank you for that. And I pray you'll continue to do that. And for the marriages that are still struggling, God, that you will do miracles in them. Because you can bring anything back to life, including devoted, faithful love in a marriage. We seek you for these things, but help us above all to seek you for you. We love you because you first loved us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.